The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I want to welcome you today to the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. This podcast is an outreach of Zion Primitive Baptist Church, which is located in the Zion community near Gordo, Alabama. I'm Elder Chris McCool, and I serve as pastor of Zion Primitive Baptist Church. We are a congregation of believers in the sovereign grace of God where families worship together through the simple practice of preaching, praying, and singing. If you live in this area or are visiting here, we would love to have you attend worship services with us. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. and the first and third Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. I'm happy to note that our daily podcast is featured on Grace Alone Radio, which you can find at gracealoneradio.net. You can find the schedule on the website, and you can also download an app to your phone so that you can listen wherever you are. Grace Alone Radio is a 24-hour streaming service which carries the message of God's sovereign grace around the clock and around the world. Zion Primitive Baptist Church is located at 9487 County Road 49, Gordo, Alabama. That's near the intersection of County Road 49 and Alabama Highway 159, about 10 miles north of Gordo, Alabama, and about 8 miles northeast of Reform, Alabama. If you're interested in finding more sermons, you can go to our website at zionpbc.com that's Z-I-O-N-P-B-C dot com, where you'll find all of our posted sermons as well as a link to subscribe to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our website, which will update you every time a new sermon is posted. As we continue today in our introduction to the book of Revelation, Elder Buddy Abernathy continues to go through chapter 1 and to share with us some of the major concepts that the book of Revelation is going to cover. Most importantly, he reminds us that this book is a revelation and not an obscuring or a covering up of Jesus Christ. Join us as we continue looking at this series on Revelation and see how encouraging it can be for God's children. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were
our first two messages from Revelation, we looked at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. And before we continue today, I want to reemphasize some of the important points in those verses. So as we read through it, we'll do that. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We tried to emphasize that this, this is the disclosure, the unveiling, the manifestation of Jesus Christ. It's not the veiling of Christ. It's not the hiding of Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Notice this is for his servants. It's not for theologians. It's not for scholars. It's not for those that are highly intelligent. It's for his servants, which would be you and I. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. We'll come back to that. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So notice, this is not written to high-level people, and the one who is receiving the revelation is also referred to simply as a servant. And John bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. John was a witness. When you witness something, you may not know everything about it, but you can tell what you saw. If you're a witness to an automobile accident and someone's driving on the wrong side of the road, you may not know why they're on the wrong side of the road, but you can tell people what you saw. And that's what John was doing. He was simply telling what he saw. Then it says in verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep the things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Notice he refers to the one that reads and the ones that hear. Uh, as a courier would take this uh, writing to the seven churches that he will address in this first chapter and in some of the chapters that follow, you'll see that these churches are uh, sort of like the shape of a horseshoe where a courier could go from one to the other. So he says, blessed is he that is reading it, and blessed are those that hear the words of this prophecy. Now, I said recently that I don't believe this is a chronological prophecy. A prophecy can mean not only a foresight of the future, but it can also refer to divine revelation given to the Lord's servants, the Lord's apostles. So I believe that word prophecy does not indicate that we're now going to have a chronological unfolding of history and we need to figure out where we are on the timeline. Now we know that there is things of the future addressed in the book of Revelation, but that's not to say that it's necessarily a chronological unfolding of the events in time. 
And then the last thing I want to reemphasize is he says in verse 1 that these are things which are to shortly come to pass. And at the end of verse 3, he says the time is at hand. Now, you might read that at first and say, well, this was written almost 2,000 years ago, so surely all these things have already been fulfilled. Well, let's go to some of the plain uh, epistles that do not use, for the most part, symbolic language. And notice how certain things which we know are yet in the future are addressed as if they're going to come about in the immediate future. Notice in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 15, this is plainly speaking of the resurrection at the end of time. And Paul says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, that means to go before, them which are asleep. Now, no one that was a member of the church at Thessalonica live to see the resurrection of the dead. But nonetheless, Paul says, we which are alive and remain. The Bible is written in a way that it applies to God's people regardless of what time period in which they live. But you'll notice specifically as you study the Bible with regard to the resurrection that every generation is to live as if that is going to take place in the immediate future. We're to live with a very loose grip on the things of this world. We're to live in anticipation of the Lord's return. You'll find throughout the Bible, and that could be a sermon in and of itself, how that that's the outlook we're to have. So I believe that gives support to the way I'm interpreting this in Revelation, when he refers to things which must shortly come to pass, and when he refers to things uh, in which the time is at hand. Let's, let's look at a few more verses, because I think this is uh, very important to uh, be established in, so that you will have the right approach toward the remainder of the book of Revelation. In Matthew chapter 24... And beginning with verse 42, notice what Jesus says. He says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Notice there he doesn't say what day, what week, or what month. He says you don't know what hour. <laughs> There's 24 hours a day, and I believe the idea is he could come at any time. You don't know what hour your Lord cometh, but know this that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now I don't know how you are, but I'm prone to always think that he's not coming. That's incorrect thinking. You know, we, we say, well, I've been 
alive for many years and it's been 2,000 years since he said he would return and we're prone to, th to think and often behave as if he's not coming anytime soon. And, and this says, be ready because in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. You see, if someone forecast the coming of Christ, you don't need to pay any attention to that because he's not going to come when somebody says he's going to come. Verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. So the message from, to draw from these verses is we don't know when the Lord's coming. We should live if he's coming in the very near future. We should live as if he's coming today knowing that, that we want to be honoring the Lord when He returns. How would it be if you were committing adultery when the Lord returned? What if you were stealing when the Lord returned? What if you were stone drunk when the Lord returned? You still wouldn't miss it, but that would be a shame, wouldn't it? And that should be one of the incentives for God's people to live godly. Not that you're afraid if you, as many believe, that if the Lord comes back when you're sinning, you won't make it to heaven. But our attitude ought to be how embarrassed I would be if the Lord came back when I was sinning. And then look also at James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Notice here how that when it speaks of the Lord's coming, the text may seem to teach that he's coming in the very near future, and yet it has been 2,000 years since James wrote these words. But he said to the first century church in James 5 and verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Again, 2,000 years have passed since James wrote those verses, but it's interesting that he talks about the importance of patience and being willing to wait at the same time that we're to uh, have that we're to recognize that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. So here's the attitude we're to have. I know the Lord is coming back. I don't know when he's coming, but I want to live with that being my focus in life. You know, that should affect all our thinking. When you go to buy a house, you know, I remember people saying, well, you know, this is going to be a starter home. You know, there's a lot of phrases we have today that people that grew up in the Depression didn't have. They would not know what you were talking about if you referred to a starter home. And you young people, those of you that are uh, early on in marriage, don't be so 
don't have such a strong plan about what you're going to do in the future. Just do what honors God now. That doesn't mean you shouldn't manage your money well. But don't be boastful about tomorrow. James even addressed that, didn't he? He said, uh, we ought not to say we're going to go in the city and do so and so tomorrow, but we ought to say if the Lord will. Now, that would apply not only to his coming, but also whether or not you have the ability to do the things you may plan to do. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for, and notice this word, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Again, this was written 2,000 years ago, but he told the people in the first century, he said, since all these things, all your possessions are going to be dissolved, you ought to live a, a holy life, and while doing so, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the Lord. So I believe... The conclusion we should reach in these two phrases in Revelation chapter 1, when he speaks of those things which must shortly come to pass, and when he says the time is at hand, he's speaking there of the mindset we ought to have, and they needed that mindset at this time. You see, of all peoples, and of all times, we're the people that from a natural standpoint need that the least. And here's what I mean by that. We're comfortable, aren't we? You know, it's okay continuing on in this life. We look forward to tomorrow. We're going to go on a vacation or, you know, we're going to do this tomorrow. And I'm going to just take it easy and read tomorrow and rest at home. That wasn't their lot in life. They needed to know that the Lord is returning and it could happen at any time. That there is a world beyond this world that Paul described as far better. And they needed to know that. One more, look at Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20 so we can look at a verse not only in the same book, but at the end of the book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. That's the last thing recorded that Jesus said. That's interesting, isn't it? Surely I come quickly. And the response John has ought to be the same response we have 2,000 years later. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So I hope that has been sufficient to help you have the correct outlook 
from the perspective of the book of Revelation. This is written to God's servants who are hasting unto the coming of the Lord. Now, let's read verses 4 through 7, and we will not cover all of this today, but I want you to think about this in this portion of chapter 1. John is here preparing them for what he's going to talk about. He's setting the foundation. And in these two verses, there are two very important, fundamental, doctrinal truths which can serve as a foundation when you attempt to interpret some of the highly symbolic language in the rest of the book. Let's read verses 4 through 7. John to the seven churches. We know who's writing the letter and who it's being addressed to. Which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Now, even though verse 6 ends a long sentence which began in verse 4, I went ahead and read verse 7 because I want you to see this important foundational doctrine which harmonizes with the Rest of, the old, uh, rest of the New Testament in particular harmonizes with the Old Testament too, but as far as specific doctrines stated are concerned, it harmonizes with the New Testament. So I want to read those first, and then we'll go back to verse 4. Look at the end of verse 5. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, John states in verses 4 and 5 who the letter is from, but then he's giving recognition unto the one that the letter's about. He says, unto him that loved us, past tense, and washed us, past tense, from our sins in his own blood. That tells me that your uh, sins have been washed away. Now, doesn't that agree with many other places in the uh, Bible? Let's notice how that you can give honor to each person of the Godhead with regard to what Jesus accomplished. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, notice this. 
contrasting what Jesus did to the priest, it says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place. How many times did he enter there? Once. Having obtained, past tense, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That harmonizes and is, and not only harmonizes, but is addressing the exact same subject that we read about in Revelation. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. Here he entered once into the holy place with his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, watch this, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus made this offering, and notice how he describes this offering. He said it was through the eternal Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God. And then notice Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. We're emphasizing what is laid there in Revelation as a foundation. Romans chapter 5, verse 9 says, Much more than being now justified by His blood, because we're justified now. See, redemption describes a transaction where the price is paid and you get what you paid for. Now, because our sins are washed away, we're clean, furthermore we're redeemed, and the word justified means to pronounce righteous or to declare righteous. And he says, much more than being now justified by his blood, because you're washed by his blood, we shall be, here's future, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You will be saved from wrath. Because your sins have been washed away by His blood. And notice what they're singing in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sung a new song. Now this doesn't necessarily mean they're singing a different song. But in heaven it's going to be new. You're going to sing it in a way you never did. Here they sang a new song. What are they saying? Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. These suffering persecuted Christians needed that understanding as John lays this foundation that he has washed us from our sins in his own blood. And look at this next important fundamental doctrinal truth in verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Now, wait a minute, I thought Revelation was all about Armageddon, the thousand-year reign, uh, 
the great tribulation. Well, John just overlooked all of that. He said, Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There's a pause. Behold, he cometh with clouds. And there are many places in the New Testament where the Lord's second coming incorporates that word clouds. He cometh with clouds. Look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 64. Jesus saying unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's what he's speaking about here when the Lord returns. He's coming in the clouds of heaven. Mark chapter 13 and verse 26. Jesus said, let's begin with verse uh, 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then look at one more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. Talking about after the Lord comes, after the dead are raised, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And where are those clouds? In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. See, the clouds aren't in heaven right here. He says we're going to meet him in the clouds and where we're at. We're on our way to heaven, aren't we? In the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, I used to hear preachers say when they would quote Isaiah 40, in verse 1 where it says, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. They would say, That doesn't say, Scare ye, scare ye, my people. And oftentimes the book of Revelation is interpreted and preached as if we ought to be afraid. I was with a uh, relative not too long ago at a funeral. And, you know, there, most people will assume you believe in you know, the thousand-year reign and the great tribulation and all that. And he, he came up to me and just immediately started asking me, okay, the, the great tribulation is going to come and then this and then this. And he was wondering, wanting me to uh, clarify the order of these events. And I just had to say, I don't believe in any of that. And tried to show him a few scriptures, as I've shown you, about how we're looking for the Lord to return to take us home. So, as we bring this to a conclusion, I want you to think of this. 
Take these thoughts with you. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Christ. And when we read this book, yes, there may be different particular times referenced. But in general, we're to look as if there's a battle between good and evil. When you read that symbolic language and those scary visions, there's a battle between good and evil. Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places, just because that world is unseen does not mean it's less real. It's just as real. You don't see God, but you believe He is real. He says there are rulers of the darkness of this world, and Revelation is describing that ongoing battle, but shortly... And in the time which is at hand, Jesus is going to deliver us from it. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. And He's coming with clouds. Now let's make one final point. Notice it says in verse 7, Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. Here's how you will know somebody's lying about the Lord's coming. You know how you'll know someone's lying about the Lord's coming? If they tell you the Lord came. Amen. That's how you know they're lying. If they tell you the Lord came, because nobody's going to have to inform you about it. Amen. Now, can I prove that with Scripture? Notice this in, uh, in uh, Matthew 24... Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you... Now, you could read and study Matthew 24 and establish the, the chronological order of events here. But at this point, he's referring to the Lord's second coming. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now that just means when it lightnings, everybody sees it. You say, well, they don't see it all over the world. That's not the point. This is just a common sense principle. You know, if it, li if it lightnings, quote unquote, at my house, I don't have to ask somebody a mile down the road if they saw the lightning. They saw it too. That's the point he's making. He says, in the same way that the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, that's how it's going to be when Jesus comes back. Everybody's going to see it. Every eye shall see him. Thank you for joining us today on the Zion Primitive Baptist Church podcast. I hope the message has been uplifting and beneficial to you and that the Lord will continue to bless you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. Join us again tomorrow for another message of God's sovereign grace. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates.
If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. Or you can email me directly at jchrismacool at gmail.com. That's the letter J-C-H-R-I-S-M-C-C-O-O-L at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless you is my prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.